Well, we're getting towards the end of the um, letter that we have before us, James, and we have a sermon series titled Spiritual Living. Um, We have just three more messages, and then we will be moving on to uh, the parables of Jesus. Um, But for now, boy, oh boy, uh, chapter 5 of James, verses 1 through 6, it's in your pew Bibles on page 1013, it's printed before you. Before we read, let me ask you a question. Do you remember a time when you were a kid? Well, some of you are kids still, but you remember a time when you were a kid and you fell off your bike or your skateboard and you skinned your knees, both of them really bad, and you had these big bloody scabs on them, right? And they hurt when you moved, uh, but then you just couldn't wait to go out like a week later on your skateboard or bike, and then you fell again on those same knees and you um, reopened fresh wounds. You remember that? Well, today's message will feel a bit like that. (laughs) A number of you told me how hard but helpful last week's sermon was. If you missed it, they're online. You can listen there. One person said the message seemed to creep up on you, and then bam, it hit you. (laughs) Last week, James presented us with the truth that our lives are but a mist, like a vapor in all eternity, and therefore... Our lives should really be, our plans in our lives should be all about seeking God's purposes and plans for us. Today, James turns up the heat. He tears into the rich. He calls them out for their self-indulgence and their love of possessions. And some of you are thinking, yeah, you go, James. Get those rich people. Funny how we tend to see ourselves. No one tends to think of themselves as rich because there's always someone just one rung up the ladder ahead of us to scold. But the truth is, compared to the rest of the world, compared to people living in ancient times, we are all rich. The question before us isn't, am I wealthy, but rather, how do I relate to the wealth God has entrusted to? Do I hoard it for myself, or has God freed me from the worship of wealth? James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your, your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word, even this difficult word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that in your kindness, uh, you open up wounds Um, not so that we can heal them in our own efforts, but so that by your grace, you can show us the better way. 
You care for our souls, even now. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our hearts. May this sermon not be for someone sitting next to us, but may it be for us ourselves, including me who preaches it. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the wisdom you give. In the name of our Savior, amen. During the Great Depression, hobos traveled the railways, and they used to mark a house where a kind person lived, someone that they could trust to hand out food to them generously. My grandma's house had such a mark on it. My grandfather remained employed, thankfully, during the Depression, but he didn't have a great job. And they didn't have much, but what they had, they shared with the hobos. To what do I attribute their generosity? I attribute it to my grandmother's faith in Christ. The gospel gave her a different perspective than that which was in the world around her. My grandmother lived with great spiritual maturity. If you've been tracking with the sermon series, you recall this letter of James is written so that the people in the churches scattered outside of Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, would mature, that they would grow spiritually. That, and one aspect of spiritual growth is what? It's to have a biblical worldview. When you become a Christian, you begin to see the world differently. Time and contentment and ethics and morality, how you value things, all things are being seen differently. Now, today, James gets a little tough. He lays into the rich. He rebukes them so that they may turn from their practices and attach their hearts to Christ and come to live the abundant life that only relationship with Christ can bring. Now, of course, the Bible isn't against having riches. It's against us misusing our riches. And so James is issuing something we all need, right? A warning not to misuse our income, our assets, our, our, um, our wealth. And in, in America today, we're tempted in all areas, in all facets of life, to hoard our wealth, our resources, our paychecks. But instead, we are to lament any wasting of the wealth that God has entrusted to us. And thereby, we're to come to live our lives in the last days, delighting in God's blessing towards us with an attitude of sharing God's blessings towards others. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, we're going to look at two th areas. We're going to look at the miseries, and we will look at the manifestations. And then we'll have some brief applications. First, the miseries. All right, I told you, opening up some wounds here. Here we go. <clears throat> When we misuse the wealth that God entrusts us with, it leads to miseries. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. In other words, repent. Wail over your way you're living. Why? For the miseries that are coming upon you. The first misery is that of seeing our riches rot. Misused wealth never delivers what you hope from it. James says in verse 2, look, he says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And in James's day, wealth consisted of three, three, three things, grain, clothing, and precious metals. James is saying, none of these things last. 
James is presenting us with this stark truth. The rich do not or cannot see that their wealth has already lost its luster. You know, Jesus once talked about two different foundations upon which to build a house. You could build your house on on sand or you could build your home on a solid rock. The house built on sand might look or appear lasting, but its foundation will eventually collapse under it. So too wealth in light of eternity. Living your life on a foundation of earthly riches is to live your life already on a collapsing foundation. The problem is, as James shows us, is that we cannot or will not see this. And so unless God opens our eyes, we will live our lives attached to earthly riches and the false hope that they bring instead of living our lives attached to Christ and the eternal treasure that he gives to all who trust in him. And so James's point is really not all that hard to wrap our heads around, is it? He is saying that if we're obsessed with grain, clothes, and, and precious metals, we cannot help but weep and howl when they're all gone. Benjamin Franklin makes an interesting observation about wealth. He said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Until Christ comes into your life and realigns your priorities, you will crave more and more wealth and possessions. And the more you have, the more you will want. Are you familiar with this principle? Now, it really sounds rudimentary, doesn't it? Like, as if we don't even need to mention it, right? We all know that money never makes you happy. Our, our heads, we cry out, uh, it's a truth that we all embrace. Money will not make us happy. But our hearts say, well, let's give it a try anyway. <laughs> Once again, having wealth in itself is not sinful. Please hear me on that. It's whether our hearts are attached to our wealth or not that is sinful. In the Bible, Abraham and Job and David and Zacchaeus and Joseph of Arimathea were all wealthy. None of them had cell phones, though. Um, they saw themselves as blessed by God, and they sought to use their blessing from God to bless others for God's glory. Problem is, they're the exception, not the rule, which is why Jesus said it's easier for for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, wealth has an intoxicating effect. It numbs you to your need of God's mercy and his grace. Wealth can give you a a false sense of worth, a false sense of security. And so wealth often can lead you pridefully away from Jesus Christ. That's the first misery. The second misery is what I call the witness of wealth. We foolishly use our wealth, and our wealth will testify against us someday in the future. James uses courtroom language in verse 3. He says, look there, he says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And it will eat your flesh like fire. Listen, my friends, your life right now, every day of your life, past, present, and future, is lived before God Almighty. 
Jesus said, one day you will stand before him and give an account, Christian and unchristian alike, an account of all of our actions, every careless words, and in particular, every check that you've ever written, every agreement or transaction you've ever entered into, every credit card you've taken out of your wallet. It will be evidence. What you have done with the wealth of God that he's entrusted to you, it will speak either for you or against you. You know, as I look back on all the things that I've bought over the years, everything I've spent money on, I've actually bought a motorcycle on a credit card in college once. That was just like the stupidest thing, right? I did that. You guys are looking at me with like scorn. I did. I'm sorry. It's paid off now. I pay off my credit cards every month. But when I think of all the stuff I spent money on, every contract I've signed, every check that I've written, every transaction of my entire life, it's a witness to what's going on inside of my heart. Every transaction says either I'm using God's wealth as, uh, that he's entrusted me for my own self-indulgence or I'm using it for God and for his kingdom. How about you? Think of all the transactions that you've signed your name upon. What is it that they, they testify concerning your heart? What will those purchases say about you? I think every one of us will be ashamed of the many ways, big and small, that we've entrusted our lives to treasures that rust and corrode. So James wants us to be aware that our attachments to wealth and possessions, they testify to heaven about what drives our hearts. Has Christ in his kingdom captured our affections or is the fleeting treasures of this world that grips our hearts? There's much at stake here. That's why James says to the unrighteous rich that they're to weep and to howl. The purpose is to drive these readers who, um, some of them were actually quite poor, but for them, them themselves not to think that wealth was their answer, to begin to worship it and to crave it. And to see Christ as the need in their hearts. Those are the miseries of wealth. Now let's look at the manifestations of what happens when we misuse our wealth. The first is hoarding. James speaks of hoarding at the end of verse 3. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now when James writes the last days, he isn't referring to some like end of time return of Christ. The last days are all the days from the day in which Christ came to earth, his first coming, and up until the time of his second coming. Guess what? We are living in the last days. Jesus is returning someday. It could be today, it could be next week, it could be in a hundred years. Every generation of Christian has always felt that they were the generation in which he would return, which is a good way to think. But the point here is our handling of wealth should be with this return of Christ in mind. James warns his readers of laying up treasures in the last day. Now, Scripture never says that we should not save. Saving is wise, and Scripture calls us to be wise and to plan and to be prudent. But listen up. Here's what hoarding is. Hoarding takes place when we continue to accumulate above and beyond that which is necessary. Now, 
I'll leave it up to you to determine what necessary is in your life. The last things the followers of Christ should be doing is laying up treasure when it should be unleashed. Let me ask you, if you knew Jesus was returning in exactly 10 years from today, how would you handle your finances differently? Yes, I'm sorry to say you would have to keep your job. It's 10 years, not 10 weeks. You would have to pay rent and and buy food and clothing. You might need to replace a car. But in light of your new perspective on living in the last days, would you not also be quick to unleash these resources that come upon you? Would you not live in a sacrificial way that would free up resources so that the gospel could be advanced in your community and around the world? I tend to think, of course, you and I would do that. So the question James wants us to ponder then is, why isn't this attitude, regardless of whether Christ is returning in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, Why isn't this the attitude that we have with regards to the wealth that God has entrusted us? We are living in the last days, therefore we are not to lay up treasure. Let us not hoard our riches, but let us attach eternal significance to them and unleash them for Christ's glory. The second manifestation of misused wealth is seen in how the rich defraud Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Other translations say, Lord Almighty. The Old Testament consistently condemns the fraudulent treatment of workers. It teaches that the worker is to be paid every day at the end of the day a living wage. Why? So that he can go home and provide for the needs of his family for for that day. God literally gave them their daily bread as they worked. Unfortunately, wealthy landowners regularly defrauded their workers. And because of their wealth, they were shielded uh, from, from the accusations of their workers. The court systems worked in the wealthy's favor as it does still today. And the, the laborers' cries seemed to fall on deaf ears, but someone heard. Who was it that heard? James says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. God in heaven hears the cries of all who cry out for justice. Knowing that the cries of the people reached the Lord Almighty should produce two things. One, conviction, and the other, comfort. First, conviction. All who have used their positions of power at the expense of the lowly should be convicted of their sin against God and man. Justice is coming, possibly in this age, but most certainly in the age to come. Also, though, comfort. All who have experienced injustice at the hands of the powerful should take comfort that the judge at the highest court in all the universe hears their cries. He is partial to them. He will act on their behalf, either in this lifetime or certainly in the age to come. 
Next, we see the manifestation of self-indulgence. The first part of verse 5 describes the misuse of wealth and how it manifests itself in luxuriating self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Isn't this how many in America live with self-indulgence and seeking after a life of luxury? We, we run up our credit cards buying things that don't last in order to impress somebody we don't even know. <laughs> the gospel is meant to change all of this self-indulgent luxuriating in the present. See, when Christ becomes your all in all, when you turn not to treasures of this world to prop up your self-worth or, your, or to make you happy, when your life is hidden in Christ, the contentment and joy of Christ is yours, no matter your financial status. Now, James' indictment of those who misuse their wealth builds in the last two manifestations. The next is wallowing. The rich wallow in their wealth. Look at the end of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Oh, the imagery there. It's actually quite revolting. It's worse than scab knees, let me tell you. It's, it's like cattle who, who graze day after day, and they're gorging. They're like, this field is great. You should try this. Hey, it's awesome. And they just fill their bellies with it. But the reality is they're just making themselves fatter and fatter. They're going to be sold at market sooner or sooner. The day of slaughter, because of their gorging, is coming more sooner in their lives. And James is saying, so too, people who use their wealth to luxuriate themselves. Though there are needs all around them, people who could benefit from their generosity, they are oblivious to the needs of others. But little do they know. The more they eat of their own luxuries, the fatter they become, and the more fit for slaughter they are. The final misuse of wealth manifests itself in murder. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, the self-serving rich didn't like literally go out and like murder people, but their actions of hoarding and fraud made it so that the, that the poor in their midst experienced great difficulty and hardship. In many cases, it took away their living. Perhaps they fell ill. Perhaps they got sick. Perhaps they even died. The point is, when you live in such a way that you care not for the poor and disadvantaged around you, it's as if they are actually dead to you, Right? Now, that's verse 6 in a broad sense. But when you parse the grammar, you realize that the one murdered is a singular pronoun. He is a singular person. Who was this one righteous person who was condemned and murdered and yet did not resist? Think about it. James is writing to Jewish Christians who were now scattered from Jerusalem, who lived in the days of Jesus. James is Jesus' brother. It is entirely possible that some to whom he was writing were there that day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Their voices shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
And yes, they were there at the end of the week when Pontius Pilate offered up Barabbas and instead they called out for Jesus. They said, crucify him, crucify him. Amazing, right? Jesus, the only human being who ever lived with perfect righteousness, the one Judas sold out for silver coins that in the end corroded his soul, the one that Pilate said was innocent, but he condemned him anyway. And Jesus, he did not resist. Jesus, the righteous person, left the riches of heaven to become poor for our sake so that we and him can become rich. That is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where he writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, the rich here isn't material richness or riches. This is being rich in life and love and purpose and a sense of meaning. It's having that biblical worldview of things that gives you joy and delight no matter your circumstances, no matter how much you have in the bank account. Knowing this about our Lord must change us. It must drive us with joy to live today with great sacrifice. We must mature spiritually so that we can say along with the martyred missionary Jim Elliot, listen to what he says. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you have that perspective on life? So we looked at the misery of misused wealth and the manifestation of misused wealth. Now just a brief application. You know, I think most of us here are familiar with Rick Warren. He's a pastor at Saddleback Church out in California. And he wrote a hugely popular book called The Purpose Driven Life. Perhaps some of you have have read that book. I'd like to read part of an interview with Rick Warren in which he talked about he and his wife Kay and how they decided to deal with all the money that came in after, um, after his book sales. Here's what he said. In one quarter, my book earned $9 million in royalties alone. So I'm going, okay, God, I don't need this money. What are you doing with this? I don't need this. I'm a pastor. And I certainly don't think God gives you money or fame for your own ego. I went to scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking to pastors about money and their salary. And he says, those that teach the gospel should make a living by the gospel. In other words, it's okay to pay your pastor. Okay, that's good. (laughs) But he says... Oh, gosh. All right. I will not accept that right because I want to be free. I want free reign to serve God for free so that I'm a slave to no man. That's what Paul was writing. And when I read this, I said, that is what I want to do. 
I want to serve God for free so that I'm a slave to no man. So three years ago, my wife Kay and I made five decisions. First, we decided that we should not change our lifestyle one bit, no matter how much money came in. So I still live in the same house I've lived in for 15 years. I still drive the same Ford truck and have the same two suits. I don't have a guest home. I don't have a yacht. I don't own a beach house. We just said that we aren't going to use money on ourselves. Second, I stopped taking a salary from the church. Third, I added up all that the church had paid me over the past 25 years, and I gave it all back. I gave it all back because I didn't want anyone thinking that I did it for money. And I knew that God was raising me up to a position of prominence. I knew I was going to be under the spotlight, and I wanted to live a life beyond reproach. So we gave it all back the very next week. And the very next week, it was either time or Newsweek. They came and did an interview with me. And the very first question they asked was, what is your salary? <laughs> I was able to honestly say I've been able to serve my church free for 25 years. It felt so good to bust that stereotype. Fourth, Kay and I became reverse tithers. When we got married 30 years ago, we began tithing, which is 10%. Each year, we would raise our tithe 1% to stretch our faith. 11% the first year, 12% the second year, 13th the third. Every time I give, listen to what he says, every time I give, it breaks the grip of materialism in my life. Every time I give, it makes me more like Jesus. Every time I give, my heart grows bigger. And so now we give away 90% and live on 10%. Fifthly, God said to me, the purpose of influence is to speak up for those who have no influence. He writes, that changed my life. I had to repent. I had to say, God, I am sorry. I can't think of the last time I thought about widows or orphans. They're not even on my agenda. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, I hope Pastor Mark starts writing books. <laughs> Well, that's, that's not our application this morning. <laughs> Although I do have a couple titles in mind, but uh, I don't think they'll be bestsellers. I'm too busy trying to plant a church and get a counseling center going anyway. Um, understand this. James's intent here isn't simply to drive us to guilt. But then again, conviction of sin is important in our lives. As Sinclair Ferguson said, listen, he says, the wonderful thing about being convicted is that it means that God is still speaking to you. So will you listen to God's word to you? Will you take ownership of the ways you look to wealth and possessions to perhaps be your savior? Will you, along with me, repent of all the transactions in our past that testify that we've lived with our hearts wrapped around our wealth? But James wants us to experience more than guilt. He wants us to cry out for God's grace. We are to weep and to howl over our fickle hearts so that we may be reminded of God's grace towards us. You know, I hope you know this. Jesus is so patient with all who follow him. 
me included and you included, he is patient with you. It's not like Jesus says, oh, get your act together and then you can follow me. No, he says, come follow me. And by the way, I'll show you all the grace you need so that your life can become more and more like me over time. If you belong to Christ, that's his goal for you. To change you. To be more like him. You know, Jesus knows our fallen natures. He he knows that. He knows that we're fickle people. He knows we're probably going to walk out this door this morning and go, wow, that was really cool. I really need to think more about my resources. And then tomorrow we're on Amazon buying some giant inflatable who knows what, right? (laughs) I love giant inflatables, but, you know, that's just how we are. And so James's point is that he really wants to drive home how attached our hearts can be to wealth and to see it with, in mind with these supposed rich, evil people that perhaps weren't even in their congregation. So they could see as, as humbly as they could that they could easily be like those people were it not for God's grace and the continual reminder of how wealth tries to weasel its way into our hearts to change our affections away from God and his kingdom to our own kingdom. So we need this reminder, do we not? Now, let's rejoice, though, in God's steadfast love for us. May his love change us. And may we live and give in these last days with an eternal perspective in our minds and with the love of Christ in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do open up wounds, um, fresh wounds, that we can see our frailty, that we can own up to the hurts in our lives, and that we can seek your care and guidance and love and direction. Oh, how we need this with regards to riches and wealth and possessions and income and things that we long for. May this sermon serve its purpose. May the words of James change us in this hour, in this week, and for the rest of our lives, as long as they are. May we live out this truth, we pray. Amen.